In Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 7, our study has brought us to another scandalous section. I mean, if you thought our discussion on Romans 8 about election and predestination was confusing, uh, today's passage is going to go beyond that. Um, and I'm not sure why, because to be honest, like, I mean, everybody delights in submitting to authority. That just comes naturally to us. I mean, especially human government, correct? It's not good. The jokes aren't getting any better, guys. You can help me. You're going to help me. I mean, everybody delights in that. I mean, we as human beings, uh, when we talk about issues like politics, politicians, elections, taxes, we handle it in a way that is charitable, willing to listen patiently to the other person's opinions. Not hardly. As a matter of fact, the quickest way to enter a heated debate, maybe even a fight, is to speak about your views of the government. I mean, whether you're conservative or liberal in nature, our views on the government can trigger others who may differ and react in some way. And recently in our world's history, these reactions have lost their once held propriety. We used to be able to talk about these things and be civil and agree to disagree. Now, what should be a debate just becomes two people yelling at each other, where the loudest voice wins. Or we look for that gotcha moment where the rest of the crowd goes, oh, and drops the mic and walks off. That's not how we're supposed to do that. These once respectful debates have been reduced more than, nothing more than speaking, even shouting over one another. Now, let me say this. I don't mean to assume that our study this morning is going to change all that. We're not going to walk out of here totally perfect on this. But it is not, what I want to say is it's not, I believe, Paul's intention in writing the passage we're getting ready to read to discuss politics. That's not what he's about. Okay? So let me say this real quick. Let me make a quick caveat here. And my view, the, the views of Rick Kleinert are not the views of Salem Baptist Church, Salem Baptist Christian School, or subsidiaries. Did I get that? Did I cover our taxes? Okay, we're good? All right. But what I want to submit to you today is what Paul is talking about in Romans chapter 13 is not so much about choosing whether or not you want to do this or that for the government, but rather our posture, our default posture when it comes to human authority. What we see here is that I believe personally, we have as believers, we should perform various civic duties as believers. And my, my, my argument today is, and from Paul, is that this role or our role within the government, we are to be good citizens. Or I'd like to submit to you this phrase, we're supposed to be an unordinary citizen. Because an ordinary citizen, I'm going to use that term, we ordinarily respond to human government, human authority in a certain way. We react in a certain way, whatever your default position is. But what Paul asks us to do today is to be unordinary reflecting, uh, or sorry, the responsibility we have, reflecting that responsibility to perform the duties we have as citizens in a way that reflects the character and nature of Christ. So with that, let's read chapter 13, 1 through 7 today. Paul writes in verse 1, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there's no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. 
for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Will you pray with me once again as we begin this passage? Father, we have a deep passage here. And Lord, I don't want to say anything that's just my opinion. As a matter of fact, Father, if I just say my opinion today, let it be forever forgotten in the ears of those listening. And Father, I pray that no one would even remember that I, that I was the one who preached this sermon. But I pray that they would remember the truth of your word. I pray that we would all go out of here in a desire to do what your word says in the best way we can. Father, we ask God that we would do this out of an act of obedience and worship to you and you alone. And we pray that you would give us strength to do it through your spirit. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I think it's important for us to remember before we go any further the context of within the book of Romans. The book of Romans here in Romans chapter 13, 1 through 8, this happens in, right in a context, in a historical context that, that may, be familiar, or may be familiar to some of you, but maybe not to all of us. He gives us a lot of things in this passage, and if our first blush reading it, we could think one thing, but we need to understand in which it happens. I like to say it this way. Every letter of the New Testament, specifically the one that, ones that Paul wrote, is someone else's mail. The immediate audience of Romans was these, were these Roman Christians. And so we have to understand how they would have received these words in the context in which they would receive them. And when we understand that, we really can get a grasp of what God's telling us today. Now, God wants us to know a few things about our responsibility to human government. He wants the Roman Christians at his time to know a few things about their responsibility to Roman government. And here it is, first and foremost, that God instituted human government. He says it right there, where he says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there's no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Paul states that human government, I'm going to use that term. Now, when I say the word government, I'm talking about the human government. Don't just naturally react onto the current government or the, the government that, that you remember as a kid or anything like that, but human government, any authority. But specifically speaking, Paul is talking about these Roman authorities over them. And he says that that has been instituted by God himself. The idea of human self-governance was a design by God. And we see this early on in Scripture. In Genesis chapter 9, verses 5 through 6, where God tells Noah after the flood, he says, and for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. Here's where you see the first seeds of human government. From every beast, I will require it from man. And from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. See, what's happening in this passage is that God is handing authority to mankind concerning the governance of themselves. He says, I want you guys to take care of each other. Thus, mankind's governance or its self-governance, check this out, it's not a human construct or a device that men created 
to control other men. Now, is it used for that sometimes? Absolutely. We're going to get to that. But first and foremost, let me say that human government, human authority has been instituted by God for man's well-being. As a matter of fact, it is a gift from our creator to do his will on this earth. Now, I know when I say these words, and as you hear them, there may be an immediate response that pops up. You might be thinking, well, what about bad? What about improper? What about evil forms of government? Now, I get it, and we're going to get there. And that question leads us to this next point for why we ought to submit to human authorities. Because submission to authority is an expression of our submission to God. God governs the world by human government. Thus, rebellion against government is rebellion against God. Now, Paul gives us the negative of it. And there's a reason why I think in that, because it's possible that Paul here is referring to this historical, some historians have told us about a tax revolt that was happening in Rome that some of the Christians were going to take part in. And Paul goes with a negative, go, guys, don't forget, if you rebel against government, you're rebelling against God. But the positive is true. Our handling of human authority over us is a direct relation to our handling of God. In other words, it's an act of worship, our submission to authority. You ever thought about that? It's an act of worship. Not worshiping the government, not worshiping that authority, but worshiping the God who set that authority over us. He says it here, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there's no authority except from God, to those, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Verse 2, therefore, whoever resists the authority resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. Now, there are examples of bad government, and we're going to speak to our biblical responses uh, of that. In fact, the Bible only provides believers with one exception to this command. I want you to keep that in mind. The Bible only gives us one exception, and that's when obedience or submission to human authority would mean disobedience to God. So I want you to understand something. What Paul is saying here is specific. Paul's not saying find a way to do the wrong thing, find a way to rebel against authority. He's saying, listen, obey the authority over you unless they're asking you to disobey to go against God. Now, we got to be careful, though, to not let the main theme of this passage be lost amid that objection. We're going to get to that. But what really what Paul is saying here, what we must remember this morning, is that Paul's reminding us, his audience there in Rome and us today, of the church's responsibility of submission to human authority. And I'm a, a big history nerd. Most of you know that. And this is actually backed up in church history. I've just got a few uh, examples of this. If you want more, you'll get that email this week, and it's got a lot of footnotes. So if you want to get some sleep one day this week, and you're like, I'm, I'm, I'm having a hard time sleeping, I'm running out of melatonin, grab that sermon script and read these footnotes. All right? The church father, Tertullian, who lived from 155 to 220, advocated the same thing. He actually wrote at length about the relationship between the church and the state in his work, Apology. He writes, We offer, for the, offer prayer for the safety of our princes to the eternal, the true, the living God, whose favor beyond all other things they must themselves desire. Without ceasing, for all our emperors we offer prayer. We pray for life prolonged, 
for security to the empire, for protection for the imperial house, for brave armies, a faithful senate, a virtuous people, the world at rest, whatever as man or Caesar and emperor would wish. He then goes on to say that Christians cannot but look up to the emperor because the emperor is called to office by the Lord. Here's what he concludes with. He says, but why dwell longer on the reverence and sacred respect of Christians to the emperor, whom we cannot but look up to as called by our Lord to his office? So that on valid grounds, I might say, Caesar is more ours than yours, for our God has appointed him. Now, you might listen to that going, man, that's hard to take. And you might go down rabbit trails about the divine right of kings that happened in history. But check this out. What Tertullian is saying here is we should be praying for the leaders over us. And we should see them as our leaders more than even the secular people because we know that our God put them there for some reason. And I would like to suggest that the reason Tertullian could say such a statement was his understanding that no matter what government was in place, God placed it in that role. And Paul's appeal, I want to say this, Paul's appeal does not speak to the ways in which various government actually takes power, whether it be through the democratic process or a revolution or violent overthrow, including a military force, or even whether the authority is inherited. He doesn't speak about those things. What Paul is saying here is that every form of authority, from the family to the state to the empire, is instituted by God. Now, before we go any further, we want to put ourselves in that cultural discussion. What was happening during the time when Paul wrote this book? Many of you already know this. And again, this is a footnote. But when Paul wrote this letter, he wrote around 57 A.D., And Rome at that time was ruled by a certain emperor. And I'm going to do a quiz for the audience. Does anybody know who the emperor was? Nero. Now, when I say the word Nero, you think, good guy. Ten out of ten. Would refer. Whatever you're thinking. No, you're not thinking that. Nero's reign was marked by corruption, complete depravity, and a defiance of all things Christian leading some believers of his day to actually believe Nero himself was the Antichrist. So he's the one, he's got to be that guy. And according to tradition, Paul himself was martyred under the reign of Nero. Now hang on for a minute. Here's the guy writing this letter, telling us, telling the Roman Christians to be submissive to human authority to be submissive to the human authority who is going to take his life. I want you to catch that for just a moment. Because it is in this absolute mess and abuse of power, the human power structure that God has ordained, that Paul penned the words that we're reading today. Please don't miss this. Paul is saying that it is the responsibility of all believers in Christ to submit to the authority that God has placed over them. And that authority over Paul at the time was a wicked ruler who would ultimately have him put to death. Now, my question as I was studying this is how, how? How could Paul hold such a view in the face of such a hostile government? If I may, I'd like to suggest that Paul understood God's sovereign hand over all things. 
When Paul stated in Romans chapter 8, verses 28, that we know that all things work together for those who love God and are called according to his purpose, he meant all things, including seemingly corrupt governmental systems. He wasn't just saying a few things, all things. And I like the way Bible teacher Christopher Ashe puts it when he writes this. He says, behind the apparent mess of human power structure, there rules a God of order. I'm going to read that again. Behind the apparent mess of human power structures, there rules a God of order. Now, we'll revisit the believer's response to these hostile human government systems later in this message. But for now, I want to emphasize the point once again. We must remember that what Paul is saying today, and he was reminding his audience of in this passage, is the church's, our responsibility of submission to human authority, and that it's directly connected to our responsibility and submission to God. They go together. And our default position towards human authority should be submission because God has instituted it. Or in other words, the Christian's fundamental obligation is to be a model of civil obedience, not an unruly citizen disrespectful of the governing authority. That should be our default. And that's our fundamental obligation. Now you might ask yourself, well, how? How do we do this? It's hard to do, Rick. Are you watching the news? Do you have a TV? Yeah, I get it. But we have to start from this default position. Otherwise, whatever we hear, whatever we see, is going to cause us a reaction that may not be the one that Christ designed. And closely related to this, that our default position should be one of civil obedience, we see this next reason for our submission to human government. It's found in verses 3, 1 through 5, and that is that God has provided human government to curb chaos. Look at verses 3 through 5 with me. He says, For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear for the one who's in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. God has instituted human government to curb the sinful and evil intentions of the fallen human heart. And Paul's already described how fallen our human heart is in a previous passage. If you guys remember, in Romans chapter 3, he told us that no one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And if that wasn't enough to defend the argument, he keeps going. Their throat, the things that they say, is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That is why there's a need for some form of governance over humanity. And when Paul is speaking of human government, again, he's referring to that Roman Empire. And Paul saw in the Roman Empire what one Bible teacher describes as an instrument in the hand of God preserving the world from chaos. He says those who administered the state were playing their part in that great task. 
Now, as I was studying this passage and getting ready for this, the first thing that popped in my head when I got to this point was that novel you may have read in high school, The Lord of the Flies. Now, I didn't say Lord of the Rings. Don't, go, don't, go, don't start speaking Elvish on me. I'm not talking about that one. I'm talking about Lord of the Flies. Who's read it? Or who was assigned to read it? <laughs> that might be the best one. If you remember that book, Lord of the Flies, this book was published in 1954. As a matter of fact, I love that history. Again, I'm an English guy. The reason why William Golding, the author of that book, wrote that book was because there had been a short story written before about how boys abandoned on an island would have turned out okay. And he read that and go, not the boys I know. And he wrote a book to say, this is how it would probably go down. And this is a story that follows a group of schoolboys who are stranded on an uninhabited island. And at the beginning, the boys try to govern themselves. They make up rules every day, but it ends in disaster. And as the story progresses, these boys descend into savagery and violence among themselves. In this novel, Golding was seeking to show the inherent evil that exists within all humanity, emphasizing our need for some form of protective government structure. Bible teacher, again, Christopher Ashe, encouraged us to think this way. I love this quote. That's why I'm going to put it on the screen for you. He goes, would you prefer bad government or no government? A bad school teacher or a class with no teacher at all? A bad boss or no boss? Now, every student in here went, I'll take the no teacher. I get it. But look what he says. Your answer is probably, it depends how bad. How bad are they? Yes, but the general answer is that even fairly bad government is better than anarchy and the law of the jungle. And then he goes further. He says, those of us who have ever only lived under stable and reasonably just government grumble about our governments. You ever thought of that? We have the luxury of grumbling here in the United States. But he goes, but we do not know or, sorry, but we do not know we were born by comparison to those who have lived through the total breakdown of civil order. I like this last sentence. It is a mark of the mercy of God that he governs the world by governments. Have you ever thought about that? Rather than when we see the apparent mess of our culture, imagine what it would be like without it. Friends, an unordinary way of seeing the human government over us as an act of grace and mercy from our Heavenly Father. That's unordinary. Our ordinary response is to see it as a problem that must be taken care of. And I get that. We're going to get to that in a moment. But if our default position was to see it as an act of mercy by our great God, that's unordinary. Imagine the alternative. A lawless, chaotic world where no one is safe and any power belongs to the one who sheds the most blood to control it, no matter who's harmed in the process. This is why Paul urges his beloved Timothy in 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 4 to do this, to pray that all supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings, and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. Friends, our unordinary position toward authority should be to commit to praying daily for our leaders. That's step number one, praying daily for them. How do you pray? Pray for wisdom as they lead. They've got big decisions to make. They've got people in their ear telling them how they should make it. 
Pray for wisdom. Pray for God to direct their decisions. And then surround them with godly counselors in order that we may be able to live a life that honors God and affords us with the freedom to share this beautiful gospel of Jesus to those who do not yet know it. We pray for our leaders that they make the decisions that allow us a society where we have freedom to share the gospel every day. Now, before we go any further, you've been waiting on this. There's two side notes we've got to talk about. We've got to consider them in this, this morning. And if not, if we don't discuss these side notes, we may come away from this discussion with a skewed understanding of our relationship to the government which God has placed over us and our responsibilities to it. Here's side note number one. All human authority should submit to God. That's a no-brainer. That's how it should work. Because God put it in power, all human authorities should submit to it. Since, as Paul has clearly stated, all human authorities receive their authority from God, they're also, they are also to have the duty to submit to his authority. Because all human authority exists in a hierarchy, meaning that no authority is over all. Each authority submits to a higher one. All right, let's play this realm out. Okay? Um, if you are a, let's say you're an elementary age student. Okay? Who is your immediate authority? I'll, I'll answer for you in a minute. It's your parents, correct? Right. Well, your parents have authorities over them too. You know that, right? Have you ever said that when you were a kid? Man, I can't wait till I'm an adult. I can do whatever I want. Nobody will tell me what to do. And you said that in front of an adult. They kind of snickered a little bit. Okay. Right? There's always an authority over. There's always an authority over. It exists in a hierarchy. And that authority should submit to God too. Meaning every human authority submits to a higher one. And ultimately this hierarchy ends when we reach the one who instituted all human authority. Okay? Thus any human authority works best as it submits to God. That's, that's a no-brainer again. Every human authority exists, works best when it submits to God. Now, a great example of this is that since all authorities are required by God to do, I'm sorry, to reward good and punish evil, that authority must ground this activity on what God declares to be good or evil. And unless that human authority submits to God's authority and has those, his standards of right and wrong, it's going to seek its own ideas of right and wrong. And as you can imagine, this leads to chaos. And many of you are thinking, I feel like that's happening now. And you may be right, but again, don't miss the point of the passage. Paul is not saying, let's take things over, let's yell and let's scream until we get our way. He's saying your default position should be submission unless they're asking you to disobey. And that leads us to the other side note that we have to mention before we go any further is that we must not submit to human authority when it commands us to disobey God. I want to make sure you heard me say that. Because this may be the point at which many of us here today have been waiting for it to be addressed. What do we do when human authority placed over us by God forces us to go against him? What do we do then? Now, Scripture is filled with such examples and stories of civil disobedience. In the book of Exodus, when the ruling Pharaoh over Egypt commanded that all of the midwives were to execute the Hebrew males at birth to curb the Hebrew population, these midwives disobeyed that command. If you remember, it says, but the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. 
Many of you here today may be thinking and have already started thinking about the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego of Daniel 3, when the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, creates this image and decrees that at a certain time, all were to bow down before this image and worship it. But the three men refused to do so. And when the king demanded the reason for this refusal to submit to his rule and sentence them to death, their response, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, don't, we're going to come back to those three words here in a minute. But if not, if he, if he chooses not to spare us from this furnace, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you've set up. Later in the book of Daniel, Daniel himself experiences the same hostility from the human government over him at the time, Persia, when he defied the order to pray only to the king. And if you remember in Daniel chapter 6, verse 10, it says that Daniel prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. One last instance is found in the New Testament when Peter and John appear before the Sanhedrin and they are threatened with punishment not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. And their response, the men responded quickly to such a demand by stating, whether it be right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Beloved, make no mistake, if the human authority that exists over a believer were to make demands that would bring that believer to a decision whether to obey the clear teachings of God or the law of man, then obedience to man is not an option. You clear on that? However, I must feel, or I feel it must be said, that before we move on to this, this does not give the believer a command to rebel as some people think. If you look at each of these examples in Scripture, each person who defied their human authority by fearing and obeying God were willing to face the consequences for their decision. Do you understand what I'm saying? There was no rebellion. There was no whining about their own rights. No public grandstanding about how great they were compared to the rest of the world. There was only a simply a humble resolve to obey God and receive the consequences for doing so. Beloved, let that sink in for a moment. In the face of a human government that demanded their God-denying allegiance upon the threat of death, These God-honoring men and women from scriptural history chose to obey their God rather than man, humbly accepting the consequences. To be clear, I'm not suggesting we simply take any abuse from human authority. I believe that we as believers should stand up to biblical injustices and do what we can to combat evil in this present evil age. I firmly believe that Christians should do this and also do their civic duty by voting and even running as candidates for office, seeking to take lawful stands against what we see as improper use of authority. But I want to be clear again when I say that there may be consequences for taking such stands, and we should not be surprised when they occur. Now, my f- one more point I want to consider in our discussion today is the various ways submission is lived out. So how do we do this? How do we li- live out this submission? 
He does this in verses 16, I'm sorry, verses 6 through 7. He says, For because of this you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Again, I find it unordinary that Paul's focus in this passage is not on how a believer can rebel against ungodly human authority, but rather how believers can live out submission to this authority, whatever authority it is they are under. And in this passage, really look what happens. Paul's giving two real obligations for responsibilities of the believer they have toward human government. They have taxes, which is an obligation to society as a whole, and honor, the obligation to the authority itself. Now, that first obligation here, taxes and revenue, are words that are familiar to us, but we need to look at what they meant by, in Paul's day. The Greek word there referred specifically to taxes paid by individuals, particularly those living as a conquered nation to their foreign rulers. So it's not a fun way of looking at taxes. These are money you get to pay to the people who conquered you so that they can do their government. This also includes combined income and property tax. And the exhortation by Paul echoes the teaching of Jesus when he told his followers to render to Caesars the things that are Caesars and to God the things that are God. And again, as I said earlier, it's possible that Paul is actually telling his audience here to, tr- to avoid partaking in that upcoming Roman tax revolt. Well, either way, Paul is stating that the Roman Christians have an obligation to the larger society to pay the taxes and revenue that's due to maintain their social structure. Think about that for a moment. I mean, taxes that we pay, taxes that they pay, contribute to providing things that we possibly couldn't get on our own. There are certain things we can't get on our own, and taxes cover that. Taxes are designed to provide for these necessities, paying the wages of those who work to provide them for the rest of society. For example, we pay taxes for our armed forces. They pay for our armed forces, our military, to provide the freedom and safety we enjoy. Now, you might be thinking, but some taxes are used, and I get that. I get that. As a matter of fact, that's why the tax revolt was happening. Historians tell us that the people were revolting against it because the Romans were using the taxes in ungodly ways. And here Paul could be saying, guys, don't do that. Don't take part in that. The second obligation mentioned by Paul in this passage is rendered as respect and honor. This obligation is directed more toward the authority over us. And can I submit that it also has to do with us with one another? This appeal harkens back to the beginning of the passage where Paul states that every form of authority from the family to the state, the nation, or even empire has been instituted by God. And because it's been instituted by God, our response to that government is directly related to our response to that authority of God. Think of verse 6 or 7 like this. Just as Paul is encouraging these believers to pay taxes, even if they think some of this money collected is used poorly, In the same way, believers are to honor and respect all human authority, even if they're not altogether honorable or respectable. Now, that's a hard pill to swallow because what's our ordinary response? We say things like this. Respect's a two-way street, man. You respect me, I'll respect you. I don't respect him or her because they don't respect me. Respect is earned. You have to earn my respect. These are normal 
and ordinary responses to bad authority. But God calls us to be unordinary. He calls us to show honor and respect to the human authority he's placed over us simply because he has placed it over us. Now, as I mentioned earlier, there are times when that human government is pl- that's placed over us acts in ways that are contrary to the Word of God. And when that government seeks to force us to go against the clear teaching of Scripture, we have the mandate to refuse and stand against in a way that honors God. But can we be honest just for a moment? Many of us in this room, for many of us in this room, often our refusal to submit to, our, to, submit to or honor authority It's not about obeying God over man. On the contrary, it often has everything to do with our own selfish and self-seeking longings. Because none of us woke up this morning delighting in authority. Did we? The first authority over us was that alarm clock. Maybe. Maybe you hit snooze. Maybe you just hit it. Maybe you threw it across the room. Maybe you didn't even set it. Maybe you waited for mom to wake you up and then you yelled at mom for waking you up. But it's not our natural default. It's not. Why? Because we want to do what we want. We all do. Speed limit signs. I want to see them as speed suggestions. You may think I, can take that. I can't take that unless I'm going 35, but I know my vehicle. Now, if I'm in my Xterra, I want to slow down. Jill's van, I think corners like a hippo. We got this. We got this. I may not like authority over me, but we have authority over us. All of us do. He calls us to pray for authority over us. He calls us to refrain from being overly unruly citizens. And when it's not possible, when when it's not possible for us to show submission and honor, when the authority over us acts contrary to the authority that God has put over them, he calls us to honor him and stand against it expecting to receive the earthly consequences for doing so. Now, before we conclude today, I've got one more point to make. And I have to admit, it's not in the passage. So you might be saying, oh, you're going away from the Bible? No. I just want to hold on to this one thought for just a moment. I'd like to add one final reason for submitting to authority. And I think, honestly, this final reason may be the best and most compelling of all of them. Here it is. And that's to submit to authority in the way Paul has described in this passage is to follow the example displayed by our Savior, Jesus Christ. Think about it just for a moment. And to look at this, I'd like to take a look at the first epistle of Peter in chapter 2, verses 21 through 25. It's going to be on your screen, so you could flip to it if you'd like. But I want to show you how Christ handled authority. In verse 21, the Apostle Peter writes, For to this you've been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you've been healed. For you are straying like sheep, but you have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Brothers and sisters, if anyone knows what it means to show submission to authority, even corrupt human authority, it's Jesus. 
Jesus was born into and grew up under an authoritative regime of the Roman Empire. His birth was in a place for housing cattle because the government at that time had forced a taxation on Israel as the conquered people. His parents had to flee from their residence during his earliest years to avoid him being murdered by a paranoid sociopath like Herod. During his childhood, he willingly placed himself under the authority of his earthly parents and honored them as his authority. During his adolescence, he submitted and respected the teachers of the law, as was the custom of all the Jewish males, learning the Torah that he wrote from fallible men. During his ministry, he constantly faced opposition from religious leaders who sought to discredit him in order to keep their followers from going to him. At his trial, he faced the false allegations and accusations hurled against him with a submissive spirit, knowing that this was the plan of God from the beginning. And he did it all so that he could bear our sins on the cross, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Brothers and sisters, this is our example. This is it. What better example do we have of living out this passage than the example of our beautiful Lord Jesus Christ? We're called to submit to the human authority over us because God has placed it over us. So we pray for our authorities. We live as Christ-honoring citizens in our cities, state, and nation. We seek the God-designed good of those around us. We imitate our master, our savior, Jesus, who submitted to the will of the Father in all things. And I want to make one final note before we close today. In this passage, Paul has shown us the purpose of human government exists to curb the chaos that exists within the human heart. And without that curb, humanity would naturally follow every sinful inclination of their heart. Thus, our human authority over us, rightly administered, ensures that such chaos and anarchy do not happen. But indulge me one final moment to make an application. In C.S. Lewis's book, Mere Christianity, where he talks about the human government, he just throws a left hook at the end of the, of the chapter. And it's really pointed, and I think we need to hear it today. Here's the quote. He says, The state exists simply to promote and to protect the ordinary happiness of human beings in this life. A husband and wife chatting over a fire. A couple of friends having a game of darts in a pub. A man reading a book in his own room or digging in his own garden. That is what the state is there for. And unless they're helping to increase and prolong and protect such moments, all the laws, parliaments, armies, courts, police, economics, etc., are simply a waste of time. And many of us are probably like, yes. But he doesn't stop there. You ready? In the same way the church exists for nothing else but to draw men to Christ, to make them little Christs. If they are not doing that, all the cathedrals, clergy, missions, sermons, even the Bible itself is simply a waste of time. God became a man for no other purpose. Don't miss this. What Lewis is saying here is that just like government was created by God for a specific purpose, so too the church has been created for one purpose, to draw men, women, and children to Christ and disciple them into imitators, copies of Christ. Beloved, what, what, what if that was our vision? What if that was our vision? Dream with me for a moment, will you? What would West Salem, Winston-Salem, Forsyth County look like 
If Salem Baptist Church had this single and solitary vision to proclaim Christ and make little Christs, dear friends, may this vision become our reality. Will you pray with me today? Our Father, God of all creation, you have put human authority over us. You've instituted that authority over us. You've done it for several reasons. You've done it to curb chaos. You've done it to allow the proclamation of your word and the beautiful gospel of Jesus to be proclaimed in a safe place. But Father, like many things that you have created, when our, our human hands, our sinful human hands get on them, we ruin it. Father, I pray you'll forgive us as people for ruining what you've created to be good. Father, help us in this room today now as we've heard from your word. We know what we're to do now. It's hard. It's difficult. It's a hard pill to swallow. But help us to honor you and honor the authority you put over us. May we, like the Hebrew midwives, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, Daniel, Peter, and John, and even Paul who wrote these letters, may we be willing to honor and submit to the human authorities over us. And when they ask us to go against your word, may we stand against it in a way that honors and respects that authority, willing to receive whatever consequences you give. Father, I, I can't help but think that Another thing we need to remember here as a church is that just as the government exists for one purpose, so do we as a church. And Father, the church, we forgive us where we as a church, we as the church, have tried to do the role of government. We've thought more about politics than we have about evangelism and discipleship. Forgive us, Father, for that's not our purpose. We've been created for the purpose of proclaiming Christ and making little Christ. Father, may that be our vision and our mission as we leave this room today. Fathers, we prepare to take in the Lord's Supper in just a few moments. Do whatever you want to do in our hearts so that when we come before your table, we can come with a clean heart and pure hands. We pray this in the name that is above every name, the name of Jesus. Amen.